Uh, good evening and welcome to those that are on the phone and those that are also listening on the internet. Um, what a wonderful night to be doing Bible study on the telephone or on the internet because we've had like six inches of rain here uh, in the Washington, Maryland area and it's still pouring down. So if you hear a pounding sound in the background, that's the rain coming off the roof behind me. <laughs> but uh, we want to continue and finish uh, what we began last week. And before I begin, I want to uh, tell everyone once again, uh, these Bible studies and notes are on our church website. Uh, and I'll give you the information once again if you don't have that. It's www.new-life-ministries.org. And if you go to the website, there's uh, a selection you can click on called Audio and Video Sermons. And thanks to Pastor David Slentz, he's got all of the studies organized there. And you can download both the audio file to listen to and also the notes. So if you don't have... Uh, internet access and you want copies of the notes a few of you have already uh, contacted me about that I can see that you get the copies of the notes but all of these Bible studies are recorded and they do have notes that go along with them so we are continuing and hopefully finishing what we began last week in this series that we're calling reasons to believe and we are continuing in part three, which is the authenticity of the Old Testament. And we've already looked at the New Testament, and please understand, we've not yet even addressed the question of the inspiration of the Scriptures. That's coming next. What we're looking at now is just how reliable are the Old and New Testaments as far as documents for us to read. And we saw in the case of the New Testament, there is an overwhelming volume of evidence, historical evidence, to prove that the New Testament you and I are reading now is basically the same as the documents that were handwritten in the first century. And I get a little bit weary of people saying, well, I don't know about that Bible, can't trust it, they've added all kinds of things to it. No, they haven't. The, the New Testament has far better documentation than any other piece of history. And we are now looking at the Old Testament, which of course goes even further back in time, and even though it's an ancient document, we have far better historical records to prove that the Old Testament we have in our Bibles today is not significantly different from the Old Testament that Jesus and the first century Christians would have been reading and referring to. And just to sort of recap quickly, 
what we looked at last time, our Old Testament contains 39 books. The same 39 books comprised the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it, of Christ's day. And all of the Jews generally agreed on those 39 books as representing what they referred to as the Scriptures, the Holy Writings. And without going into a lot of the details that we looked at last week, again, there are notes and audio recordings of last week if you missed that. But the process by which these 39 books came to be recognized as the Scriptures, the Old Testament, is really a supernatural thing. It's not like some board of elders or theologians or rabbis got together and voted to decide, well, Genesis stays and this other book goes. It it was a supernatural confirmation that came about through a process of when each book was written, it was basically self-authenticating. And by virtue of the uh, divinely authoritative character of the writings, along with the witness of the Holy Spirit, God's people generally agreed that this is from God. And it's been that way ever since, and the same thing applies to the New Testament. Um, The writings that make up both the Old and the New Testament have come together into what we call the canon, C-A-N-O-N, of Scripture through an amazing process. And when looking at the Old Testament, which historically was completed somewhere around 450 B.C. And I love to go over this again. We use B.C. and A.D. to talk about dates, and it must really irritate the atheists every time they hear that, because the the entire timeline of human history is based on Jesus Christ. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. So today is April 30th, 2014 A.D., the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. It's his year, and every year is based on his coming into the human race, and everything to this day is centered around Christ, before Christ, after him. Now, the Old Testament was basically completed. All 39 books were written and began to be compiled together as the Scriptures around 450 B.C., So 450 years before Christ, everything in the Old Testament had been written and was completed. That's important to remember, and we're going to point that out in a later study when we talk about prophecy. 
and we're going to look specifically at a lot of the messianic prophecies, prophecies that were given hundreds of years before they could possibly be fulfilled with exact details concerning the place, the manner of Christ's birth, etc., etc., etc. So, the oldest manuscript, handwritten copy of the Old Testament, as we saw last time, dates to around A.D. 500. And these were all hand-copied by scribes. And we have a number of different manuscripts of the Old Testament, and in comparing about 1,000 different manuscripts, we find very minor, very trivial variations from manuscript to manuscript. Once again, the Old Testament as we have it is basically the Old Testament that they had in Jesus' day and even prior to that. And without going into a lot of detail again on those different manuscripts, we covered that last time. Um, one of the secondary proofs of the accuracy and the authenticity of the Old Testament, as you know, it makes reference to many, many different places, wars, different nations, specific events are chronicled in the Old Testament, and one of the favorite uh, criticisms that atheists and others would bring against the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, is uh, there's no archaeological proof that these events happen, no archaeological proof that such and such a nation existed. Well, granted, we've not dug up the whole earth yet, and these archaeological finds are like finding a needle in a haystack, and once in a while they're lucky, and they uncover uh, some pottery or an inscription or something that bears the name of one of the kings or one of the nations mentioned in the Bible. And I gave an, an example. Uh, there are three nations mentioned often in the Bible, the Hittites, the Horites, and the Edomites. And for years the critics said, no evidence of these nations in any of the historical records, in any of the archaeological finds. Uh, we can't trust the Bible. Well, too bad. They finally found records of all three nations and a number of other peoples and cities and events that have now been confirmed by archaeology. And... I have full confidence that the more they dig, the more they find, the more it's just going to confirm what the scriptures talk about. The empires of David and Solomon, along with a number of other kings mentioned in the Old Testament, all confirmed now by archaeology. The Babylonian exile that is chronicled in the Old Testament, where Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and took many Jews, including Daniel, uh, into captivity to Babylon. All that is now documented 
and chronicled by historical archives and other archaeological evidence. The names of over 40 different kings of various nations mentioned in the Old Testament, including Belshazzar and Darius that are mentioned in the book of Daniel, have been found in contemporary documents and even inscriptions outside of the Old Testament. And all these things are always consistent with what we find in the Bible. Now, last time we ended looking at a number of occasions where Christ, in his teaching and preaching, he regularly made references to Old Testament characters, events, and even directly quoted from Old Testament passages. And in the entire New Testament, there are over 320 direct quotations from the Old Testament, along with hundreds of other references and allusions to the Old Testament. And we looked at a verse that I love in John 10, and I want to begin by going back to this one. Excuse me. John 10, verses 34 and 35. Says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? And he's actually quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6. And continuing in the next verse, If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? I like that. The scripture cannot be broken. That was Jesus' faith. That was his confidence. And next week we're going to look in much greater detail at the inspiration of Scripture. We've not even gotten to that yet. We're just looking at historical proof that the Bible is authentic and it's reliable. It's not been doctored up. It's not been changed. It's not been added to. And this is a good place to start. The Scripture cannot be broken. And also, we looked in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus says the following, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Of course, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a bold statement. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking in detail at the claims that Jesus made. This is an amazing claim. I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And as you read through the four Gospels, repeatedly Jesus affirmed the different authors and the different portions of our Old Testament as being the genuine scriptures of his day. Let me quickly run through a few examples, for instance, where he affirmed Moses as the author of the first five books of the Bible. Now, a question often arises, those books span such a long period of time, how could Moses possibly have been around to witness all of those events and document them? Well, obviously, Moses wasn't there to witness the creation in Genesis 1, nor was he in the garden with Adam and Eve. So obviously, somehow, these historical accounts were given to Moses, either by revelation from God or by him collecting various documents of other witnesses and eyewitnesses of the events, and he very carefully put them together. We don't know exactly how he did it, but he does confirm from portions of all five books of the Torah or the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, that Moses was indeed the author. Uh, very quickly, in Matthew 8, 4, Jesus said, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And he's referring to the book of Leviticus, where if a leper was cleansed of his leprosy, he was commanded to go to the priest and make an offering. So he confirms Moses as being the author of Leviticus. Then in Matthew 19, uh, verse 8, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce, and he says in Matthew 19, 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24. So here again, he attributes Deuteronomy to Moses. In Mark chapter 7, Moses is again mentioned in reference to the Ten Commandments and Jesus quoting directly from the book of Exodus. Mark chapter 7 and verse 10. And Jesus is speaking here. For Moses said, and he's quoting, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Here again, quoting from Exodus, he says, Moses said this. And in Mark 
12. Mark 12, starting with verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, he's referring to Exodus. In the account of the bush, that is, the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So, a second time now, referring to Exodus, he attributes it to Moses. And then in the Gospel of John, he's again referring to Moses, John chapter 5, and verse 46, he says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So frequently, Jesus was making reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Frequently, he was even telling us, whom he was quoting. And in John chapter 7, he again makes reference to Moses. In John 7, uh, let's see, verse 19. John 7 and verse 19, he says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And then in verse 22, he says, Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. We first read about circumcision in Genesis, and he's telling us that Moses is the one who actually recorded that and gave it to us in the book of Genesis. Furthermore, Jesus regularly quoted from the prophets, particularly from Isaiah, and I want to look at a few specifics here. In Matthew 13, as you know, Jesus often spoke in parables, and he's explaining here why he used this mode of teaching. Matthew 13, actually I'll begin reading from verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. And he's quoting from Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Uh, by the way, just a side note, Jesus knew the Bible. He memorized these scriptures. I don't think he was going around with a scroll in his pocket and pulling it out to read these verses. He had committed large portions 
of the Old Testament to memory. And let us not forget, he was fully God, but he was fully human. And as a human, he had to learn the Bible, just like you and me. All right, just a side note. Um, verse 14, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. He's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And then in Matthew 15, verse 7, he again quotes from Isaiah, Matthew 15, starting at verse 7, You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He's quoting Isaiah 29, verse 13. And finally, in John chapter 12, and verse 38, we read, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, and then there's a quote, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You may recognize that quote as coming from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Now, some critics say that Isaiah didn't write the whole book of Isaiah. One part of it he wrote, and the second division or the second major part somebody else wrote. Well, Jesus shoots that down because he quoted from chapter 6, from chapter 29, and from chapter 53, and in all three instances, he says it's the word of Isaiah. Now, I think you can see that Jesus both knew the Old Testament, and the same Old Testament that you and I have is the one he had. And he regularly refers to these scriptures in his teachings and in his preaching. He also cites Daniel as the author of the book we have in our Old Testament called Daniel. And in Matthew chapter 24, when he was talking about end times and particularly events that will be taking place during the Great Tribulation. He says in Matthew 24, verse 15, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And we're not going to go there, but he's quoting Daniel 9, verse 27, which we have studied extensively in previous Bible studies, where Daniel refers to the seven weeks of the Great Tribulation, where the Antichrist will 
set up an abomination that causes desolation in the very temple of God. Well, Jesus confirms that that was indeed written by the prophet Daniel. Furthermore, a number of characters that we know from the Old Testament that are often questioned by critics and atheists that maybe they really didn't exist and, you know, so forth and so on. Let's just list a few of important Old Testament characters and see where Jesus refers to them directly in his teachings and preachings. For instance, Adam and Eve. Um, they're not mentioned by name, but there's a direct reference to them made in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 and verses 4 and 5, where Jesus is quoting directly from Genesis chapter 2. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Straight out of Genesis chapter 2. Haven't you read? So, Jesus' audience, remember, was primarily Jewish. They knew the same scriptures Jesus was referring to, and the same scriptures that Jesus had read and memorized were indeed the Hebrew scriptures. So he could boldly question them, haven't you read this? It's in your Bible. It's in the first book of the Torah, in the book of Genesis where God made them male and female. Um, in the same Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, Jesus makes reference to Abel as well as Zechariah in one verse. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 35. Jesus is talking here. He says, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. The blood of righteous Abel, again, is a reference to the book of Genesis, chapter 4, where Cain slew righteous Abel, shed his blood. Jesus confirms that is indeed a part of the Holy Scriptures. My favorite, I think, is the next reference, which is to Noah, the ark, and the flood. This is one that college professors to this day ridicule, they laugh at, they mock any student that would even dare to believe in something so ridiculous as an ark and a worldwide flood and a character named Mo Noah. Well, Jesus confirms all of it here 
in Luke chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. He says, just as in the days of Noah, he doesn't say, as you've read in the mythology book, or as you've heard in the fables that have been passed down through the generations, he's referring to Noah as a real historical figure. Just as in the days of Noah so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. There really was an ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus confirms there really was a person named Noah, there really was an ark, and there really was a flood that destroyed all of the human race except for those with Noah on the ark. Exactly as we read in Genesis chapters 6 through 8. Jesus confirms Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a number of places. Uh, I'll just read two of them. That should be sufficient. These are not uh, storybook characters. These are real people documented in the Old Testament scriptures, historical people that are recorded for us in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11. Jesus says, I say to you, many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And my favorite reference to Abraham, and we're going to be looking at this one again when we talk about the claims that Christ made. John chapter 8, verses 56 to 59. John 8, 56 to 59. He's having a long discussion with the Jews here who claim Abraham as their father. And he says in John 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews respond, You are not yet fifty years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I M. <laughs> That's pretty clear. We may not appreciate what that means, but they sure understood what he was saying. And if you have any doubt, read the next verse. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. 
Before Abraham was born, I am. He confirms both the reality of Abraham. Abraham was a real person who was really born. And he also confirms, I am. The story of Lot that's given in the book of Genesis, uh, that's also confirmed by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke 17. And oh, the atheists, they don't like this one about fire and brimstone coming down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Jesus confirmed it. Luke 17, 28. He says, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus doesn't say Lot and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a myth or a fairy tale. He says it's history. It really happened, and something even worse is going to happen in the near future. The day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven. The whole record of Genesis, Jesus confirmed repeatedly as being true, authentic, and accurate. He confirmed the Genesis account of a six-day creation, and as we already mentioned, he confirmed the Genesis account of a worldwide flood. Look, for instance, in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. <clears throat> Actually, I'll begin from verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Note those words. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. It doesn't say at the beginning of evolution. At the beginning of creation, just as it's documented in Genesis 1 and 2, God made them male and female. And then he goes on to quote from Genesis, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. We look at another instance, in addition to the one we've already seen, where Jesus affirms and confirms Noah and a worldwide flood 
and an ark. Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 37. Matthew 24, 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Here again, Jesus confirms there was a worldwide, global flood that destroyed all human life. The, the critics and the modern liberal theologians would try to say there was some kind of a localized flood just there in the Middle East somewhere. No. Took them all away. Every time Jesus refers to Noah and the flood, it was a worldwide, global event, just as the book of Genesis says. So we can definitely trust the entire book of Genesis with all of its accounts of Adam and Eve, Abel, Lot, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, and on and on and on. It's all accurate it's all authentic. It's exactly as they had it in Jesus' day. What we read now are the same historical accounts. A number of the miracles recorded in the Old Testament, again, the liberal theologians try to discount these miracles. Jesus confirmed a number of the miracles that are documented in the Old Testament. For instance, we've already mentioned from Luke 17, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He confirmed that that really did happen. Also, in the same chapter, Luke 17, where he refers to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, he refers to Lot's wife. Remember, she turned to a pillar of salt. That's a tough one for the liberals to understand. Jesus confirms it. Luke chapter 17 and verse, well, let's read 31 and 32. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. It's clear from the context, Lot and his wife, as they were fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot kept going, Lot's wife looked back. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse 31. Don't go back, don't look back, or you'll end up a pillar of salt like Lot's wife. There's another miracle that took place in the Old Testament <clears throat> that Jesus refers to. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. This miracle didn't happen once or twice. It happened daily, six days a week, 
for 40 years in the wilderness, God gave the children of Israel manna, supernatural bread from heaven. Jesus confirms that that miracle really did happen day in and day out for 40 years in the desert. John chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 30. John 6 and verse 30. So they asked Jesus, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may believe it, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. So even the Jews are confirming here the miracle of manna in the desert. Our forefathers ate the manna. Verse 32, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. So the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You may remember also in the wilderness, all of the Israelites started grumbling and complaining, and the Lord released a whole bunch of poisonous snakes, and all of the Israelites were getting bitten by these poisonous snakes. And then God told Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and put it up on a pole. And anyone who looked at that bronze serpent was healed of their snake bites. Well, pretty strange miracle, but Jesus confirms that it really did happen in John chapter 3. John 3 and verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Confirming that that really happened, there really was a snake in the desert that Moses lifted up, and just as the people who looked at that snake were given life, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever looks to him in faith will have eternal life. If you're interested, that story is found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, confirms both the prophet Elijah and Elisha and several of their miracles. Luke chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. Luke 4, 25 to 27. Jesus says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. 
You read about that in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Verse 26, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. All this is there in the book of 1 Kings. Jesus confirms there really was a prophet named Elijah. There really was a drought for three and a half years, and that Elijah really was sent to a widow in Zarephath, just as it's chronicled in the book of 1 Kings. And then in verse 27, he's referring to an incident in Elisha's life. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So the story of Naaman being uh, healed of his leprosy uh, in the River Jordan, that's not a myth, that's not a fable. Jesus confirms that it really did happen. There really was a, a Syrian by the name of Naaman. There really was a prophet named Elisha. And this cleansing of his leprosy, as chronicled in Second Kings, it really did happen. Then one of the wildest miracles of all in the Old Testament is the story of Jonah. Oh, I have to laugh when I read some of the commentaries of these liberal theologians that just cannot believe in a God of miracles. And we've stated this many times, if God created all things out of nothing in six days, as chronicled in the first chapter of the Bible, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Can he not walk on water, call fire down out of heaven, or do anything? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. So you either believe in a God of miracles, or you don't believe in God at all. And so the story of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and surviving, oh, they have all kinds of explanations for that. Well, my explanation is the same as Christ's. It really happened. He really did spend three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, and he survived. Jesus confirms this in Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse, well, let's read from verse 38, because here again, they're telling him, we want a miraculous sign. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He confirms Jonah is not a mythical character, He's a real prophet, and what is chronicled in his book, the book of Jonah, really did happen. Verse 40, For as Jonah 
was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as the Old Testament reads, Jesus quotes it, he says, it really happened. So time and time and time again, we have Jesus quoting the Old Testament and confirming it, often verbatim, to be the scriptures that all of the Jews of his day acknowledged as the scriptures. And let me remind you once again, we have over 20,000 complete copies of manuscripts written in the 1st and 2nd centuries A.D. of the New Testament. So we have, I think, proven beyond any reasonable doubt that the New Testament is a historically accurate document, far better documented than any other chronicle, any other archives, any other ancient writings. The New Testament can be trusted, and the New Testament refers frequently to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, let me finish in a few more minutes in a similar way that we finished our look at the New Testament. We talked about how the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are an interesting confirmation of the authenticity of the New Testament. Because those were two things that Jesus taught his disciples, baptism and the observance of the Lord's Supper. If Jesus had not taught those things, and for 20 or 30 years at least, the early church, as it spread, wasn't practicing either of those two sacraments, and suddenly around A.D. 50, copies of the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, begin to be circulated, and suddenly they're reading about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they're saying, well, we never did this. We never heard of baptism. We never heard of communion or the Lord's Supper. This this thing you're calling the New Testament or the Gospel of Matthew or Mark, it can't possibly be trusted because we don't know anything about baptism or the Lord's Supper. Well, quite the contrary. They had been observing both baptism and the Lord's Supper ever since the inception of the first church on the day of Pentecost. And so when copies of the Gospels began to circulate in the churches around A.D. 40, A.D. 50, it simply confirmed what they were already doing. And they readily acknowledged these copies of the Gospels to indeed be the, the Scriptures, the Word of God. Well, something similar to that happens with the Old Testament, with the Passover. Remember in Exodus 12, the event of Passover is celebrated. Moses documents God's instructions 
both for that first Passover and for a perpetual annual observance of the Passover feast. It's all written in great detail in Exodus 12. Now, let's suppose around 700 B.C., a group of scribes and priests decide they're going to formalize a new system of worship and put together all these writings and attribute them to the great lawgiver Moses. Okay? And up until this time, nobody's ever even heard of a Passover. They've never been observing any such thing. And suddenly they're getting copies of Exodus with all of these detailed instructions on how they're supposed to be keeping the Passover in such and such a way, and they're supposed to be observing it every year. Well, if they received these so-called scriptures with all of this information, and they had never even heard of a Passover, let alone been observing it, they would have immediately rejected these writings as false and not the holy scriptures as these scribes and priests were leading them to believe. But just as with baptism and with the Lord's Supper, they had indeed been observing Passover ever since that first Passover documented in Exodus chapter 12, So when they actually got copies of the book of Exodus, they had no problem at all accepting this as the scriptures, the word of God, because they had been observing the Passover exactly as it was written in the book of Exodus. In conclusion, the testimony of the Passover the unanimous acceptance both by the early Christians and their Jewish contemporaries that what we call the Old Testament now was the scriptures of their day. It's been preserved in numerous reliable manuscripts, not to mention, once again, the amazing Dead Sea Scrolls that date back to the first century, which essentially, when put together, give us almost a complete copy of the same Old Testament that we have in our Bibles today. Um, Overwhelming historical evidence to document that the Old Testament is authentic. The Old Testament is true. And again, quoting Jesus from John 10.35, the scripture cannot be broken. And next week, we're going to begin looking at a different topic. Now, I think we've established from history, from archaeology, and from numerous different documents, the authenticity of the Bible. Now we want to look at another question. 
Is the Bible inspired? Or is it just a great book that we put on the shelf with all of our other classics? And we want to look in some detail at answers to that question. Are the scriptures inspired? Meaning, did they come directly from God? Genesis to Revelation, are these writings inspired by God, or are they just cleverly invented stories that man wrote down and put together in this collection we now call the Bible? So next time we'll look at the inspiration of both the Old and New Testaments. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the Word of God. Lord, we live in a time of such confusion. People are trying to build their lives on all kinds of shifting sands of human opinion, human philosophies, but God, you've given us your Word, which is forever settled in heaven. The scripture cannot be broken. God, you have given us both the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus had in his day and all of the writings of the gospel writers, Paul and the other apostles, documenting the life, the miracles, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and the miraculous birth of the church, the spread of Christianity, and it's all historically documented for us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can put full confidence in your word. Every word of God is pure. We can trust Genesis 1-1 all the way to to Revelation chapter 22. It's all trustworthy It's all reliable. It's all the Word of God. Father, bless every listener, both on the telephone, on the Internet, and those who may be listening to this uh, as a recorded message. Father, I pray that you would bring faith into the heart of every listener, that we can trust your Word more than any other history book, more than any other document, In all of human history, your word, your Bible, is trustworthy, it's authentic, and it is reliable. We give you thanks and praise tonight for that. In Jesus' name, amen.